and welcome to JLab, the first podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University and by BBC Northeast and Cumbria, but we're hoping that other universities and news organisations will join us in the near future too. My name's Ian Wiley and in this podcast you'll hear highlights from our first panel discussion when we ask the question, what next for local journalism? The figures paint a pretty gloomy picture. More than 300 UK local newspapers have gone in the last 10 years, while those that remain are having to take drastic action to survive. The number of journalists employed in the regional press is thought to have halved over the same period and could be as few as 6,000 across the whole country. Why should that matter? Well, because stories are not told, council meetings are uncovered and communities are left without a voice. And it's not just a problem for those of us in the regions. Around half of London's boroughs have just one dedicated local reporter, while two have no weekly newspaper at all, and one of those is Kensington and Chelsea. We only have to consider tragic and unnecessary events like the Grenfell Tower fire to get some idea of what happens when a community loses all local journalism. And yet, it's not all bad news, as we're seeing new and existing news organisations, big and small, public and commercial, seek out new ways to satisfy the appetite for local news, invest in quality local journalism and find ways of working together. It's a time of challenge and of opportunity. So I began by asking our panellists to explain what they see as the current challenges and opportunities facing their particular organisations with regards to local journalism. First, Helen Dolby, editor of Chronicle Live, the digital arm of Newcastle's Chronicle newspaper. Helen is also regional head of digital for newspaper group Trinity Mirror. We are trusted established brands that have resonated with local people for many, many years. And that's still the case. And actually the size of our digital audiences now and the number of people who engage with us through social media uh, and in the online space makes us noisier and more influential than we've ever been in a lot of ways. And I think you see that, um, you know, we had a, we had a great story uh, just, just in the last couple of weeks, which started with a lady coming into our front reception, you may have read about it, Hazel McRae, um, and telling us a story that she felt needed to be told, um, and it was about holding power to account, and it was about all of the things that we pride ourselves on doing. And the response to that, through our social media channels, and through the comments, and through everything that other people who reached out with that story um, and, and engaged with it, meant that, that that just became much bigger. Um, and, and it was a really good example of her coming to us because she felt that we'd help her, because we were a trusted news brand who'd been around for a long time. And I actually think that as publishers, that's one of our biggest opportunities because you look at the advertising um, conundrum, and I think one of the biggest <coughs> challenges that we face is how to make money, yeah. um, especially if you're providing you know, quality journalism free to air through free mobile apps and free websites as we do, and how do you make money from that? But what we're increasingly seeing is that advertisers want to be showcasing their products alongside brand safe content, and they don't want their their adverts to necessarily be served programmatically against very questionable things, which is happening more and more. We as established publishers who are trusted and who operate to a code of conduct and to a set of very strong brand values are in a really great space to to maximise that as an opportunity, and I think that's probably, you know, the answer for the future is to really is to really focus on that. Megan Lucero used to be a data journalist for the Times, and now heads up the Google-funded Bureau Local. We 
just launched um, a new project with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. So you may have never heard of it before, but the Bureau is a non-profit independent investigative body. It was set up seven years ago saying, there's gaps in the investigative reporting in the UK, let's cover the stories that no one has the time or the resource to do. So it wasn't competing with anyone, it was actually doing the work then going to whatever publisher and saying, let's publish that together. A couple years ago, they started saying, well, actually, one of the biggest gaps in the UK is, is what's happening on a local level. So we, um, you introduced me as being funded by Google. Google have a, a fund that they give to new innovative projects. We won the largest grant um, for that to set up this new <coughs> sort of how can data and tech, um, I, ha I was head of data at the time, head of that, so um, I was bringing in how can data be influenced in, in new ways of working. I'm traditionally a, jour a journalist that sort of said, I'm now more in the innovation and change space, um, really. And so I was helping push the times through that space, um, breaking stories that you can only do through mining big data sets, FIFA files, mm -hmm. our big doping investigations, the Olympics, all that kind of stuff. So how can we take that, but do it across the country? Um, how can we do that for every newsroom? So I, it was really exciting to leave a very old and an, an exciting institution and go into something completely new, nonprofit space. I'm directing this, this huge project. And the aim of it really is, is to build an, a local reporting network, to get local reporters, you know, civic journalists, everyday people, anyone who's interested in holding power to account locally can come join our network. We, um, we launched about seven months ago. We've broken 11 um, exclusive, sorry, 100 exclusive stories in, across, across the country, including places like the Hollywood Mail um, and Sunderland Echo and, and across, across the country. But what we do essentially is we come and bring the things that nobody else has. So my team go and we do the heavy lifting of digging into big data sets, finding exclusive stories, and then we give it to this network of people for free. And we say, can we collaborate? And I think that's the exciting thing about this space right now is, you know, I, I came from a space where journalism was, you know, this is mine, 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 my story. Don't share it with anybody else. And we have to break it on the front page and don't, you know, when we broke actually the FIFA, FIFA files, I'm not sure if you know about this one, we broke on the Sunday Times front page about, um, the World Cup bid, no one in the newsroom knew about it until they read it on the front page of the Sunday <laughs> Times. They were that afraid of the story getting out. Um, collaboration was just, just was really, really difficult. And we were really scared when we launched this. How, how will journalists actually share stories together? But it has been incredible to see that happen. So this week we broke an investigation about the cuts to domestic violence services around the country. We had 30 local papers working together saying, hey, I found this, hey, I found that. Everyone's sharing, no one's breaking. Everyone's holding the embargo. Um, we all broke this week, um, and we've seen you know huge change with that. And last week we did a big piece on immigration officers in the same way. We had a local reporter in Bristol who had obtained data from the Home Office through a, basically a fight on freedom of information policy, um, finally got the data and said, and he didn't break it. He held it, gave it to everyone in the network, and we broke the story on the same day around the country. We've had eight MPs call for change. We've had big stuff happening. So I think it's a very actually exciting space. I mean, I don't have the answers for the business model, but I definitely think there are answers in working together, and there's a lot of power, a lot of excitement in that area. But Andrew McKechnie, once an investigative journalist at The Chronicle, and now policy and communications business partner at Newcastle City Council, sees cause for concern. I feel very passionately about journalism, but I am also, I suppose, a, a, a poacher turned gamekeeper, having moved from journalism into public relations. And I was a journalist for 11 years, and I've worked in PR for about 16 years now, but I still think and feel very much like a journalist. And, and if I'm honest, I feel quite sad at the way things have um, changed over the years. Now, 
I understand that with the rise of social media, uh, it's a much more uh, diverse media now. Obviously, everybody gets the opportunity to comment, and that is good. But I think sometimes that has sort of almost sort of lowered the standard of public debate. I mean, looking at some of the comments that we get left uh, on our Facebook page, for example, um, it can be very sad. And, um, you know, there was a time when I was a journalist, um, local government was scrutinised pretty closely. Um, the political editor at the time I first started the council, uh, who's retired now, was very much uh, a figure to be feared by press officers. Um, and um, since he has gone, then other people have stepped into his shoes. But in that time, there has been sort of a, a bit of a lowering of the pressure on the local authority in terms of being scrutinised and being held to account by its local newspapers. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen to the same extent that it used to. Um, you know, the political editor of five, ten years ago would phone with three or four stories, could very easily tie up two or three press officers all day with those inquiries because he was someone that was trusted, that was known to the politicians. And they told him things, you know, and that sometimes, you know, caused difficulties for the press office. But that was a very healthy place to be. You know, it's good for democracy. Um, it's important that local authorities and other publicly funded organisations are held to account. You know, the City Council, even though it's made cuts of over £300 million pounds over the last six, seven years, we still spend about £250 million pounds in services alone every year. And it's very important that those decisions about how your money is spent are very closely scrutinised. As I say, it does happen but it doesn't happen like it used to. And I, and I just think in some senses it's been a bit of a, a dilution of that very essential bulwark of democracy, the local reporter, at council meetings, at cabinet meetings, in planning meetings, in licensing meetings, making sure that the public out there know what decisions are being made in their name. In terms of how we have dealt with it as a local authority, we've very much sort of moved into the social media sphere ourselves because it has become more difficult to get our messages out through the, uh, through the media. And it's not to say we don't do that, we do. We still have a very good professional working relationship with the local media, particularly with, with the Journal and the Chronicle. But um, we have become, as a press office, more of a little newsroom ourselves. So we will try and find a story, you know, rather than just writing a press release on it, we'll do a little video on it and we'll put it on our Facebook page and we'll contact the public via that channel. We'll tweet it, you know, we'll, you know, um, put it out um, through, you know, other channels. So we're having to become more imaginative in the way that we communicate, and the channels that we have now are much more diverse than they used to be than just through the Residence magazine and through the media. Having said all that, you know, I'm still pretty optimistic about local journalism. I very much think that things are cyclical and although there has been many newspapers folded, no pun intended, um, I think newspapers of the future will be a little bit like good quality cars, they'll still exist, there will be maybe a bit more of a niche market for them, but people will still want to pick up a newspaper and get professional, balanced, accurate, 
impartial information rather than some of the stuff that we hear on social media, which, which you know, frankly, at times just you know, I have my head in my hands when I when I look at some of that stuff. Local news agencies like local newspapers are also having to adapt. Ted Ditchburn, managing director of North News, explains. At the beginning of my career as a freelance in 1984, we could sell to the Shields Gazette, the Northern Echo, the uh, Sunderland Echo, Time Tees, the BBC, and the Independent, well, the Independent didn't exist then, but the Independent Guardian, Daily Mail, Daily Express, etc. I've seen these papers fall over as viable markets in my time. We, we uh, partner with uh, the Sunderland Echo and Shields Gazette, and we partner <coughs> with uh, um, the Northern Echo, yes. but they're not any longer really addressable markets for us. They haven't got the budget. The Independence disappeared as a market. The Telegraph has virtually disappeared as a market for journalism. Um, the Guardian. I used to do 20 jobs a month myself for The Guardian. Um, we don't do one every two months now. So that's the bleak side. Then the other side, we've got the, uh, we express our journalism now through working for companies. So whereas we would go and photograph Port of Time for The Guardian, we now do jobs for the Port of Time. And the journalism we still do is largely subsidised by these sort of commercial activities now. We used to be 95% pure journalism paid for by newspapers. 5% PR photography, etc. We're now 40, 60. It's dropping all the time. But we still get huge shows in the papers. We still get lots of stuff in the Sunday Deco Shields as The only speculative stuff we do now that's very successful uh, Aurora Borealis, Sunrise, Storms hitting the sea, and uh, sort of lighthouse. And we'll get big shows in the Guardian and the that's weather. That's yeah. not investigative journalism. Yeah. It's not really local yeah. journalism. Gavin Foster, managing editor of the Sunderland Echo, Shields Gazette and Hartlepool Mail, says newspapers, national and local, suffered from arrogance in the early days of the web. The key is for us, I think in, in terms of the media, I think the national papers are still suffering from this. In its arrogance, it assumed that people would still come to us. <coughs> it made a huge assumption that well, people will still buy they'll still consume what we're producing and they've got it drastically wrong and some of the national media is still getting it drastically wrong and we see evidence of that every day mm. and I think you know, over the last few years there's been a redress with media outlets and particularly local brands where we've gone well, yeah, we tried to go the, the clickbait route if we're honest we all start to panic because audiences were going elsewhere so we all started to panic and chase, chase the fluffy cat and then but it's everybody's gone as you realise nobody nobody wants that. They want that, but they want it from a certain position. They want it from Lad Bible. They want it from certain outlets. But from us, as Helen says, they want trusted local quality news. That doesn't mean everything's an investigation. That might mean a, a school photograph. That might mean a charity event. But they want that. They want that local news. But they want it from their trusted brand. We just, I think we made the mistake, we got lost for a while chasing something else that, ex that we thought existed, but actually it wasn't what people wanted. So we're learning from our audiences on a daily basis. The benefit we have now is what we didn't have in previous years. In a transition period, we didn't have the benefit of analytics. 
we now have the benefit of DNA analytics and we see what people want. And it, yes, it's the hard-hitting murders. Yes, it's the quality journalism, but it's also the pub opening down the street. You know, we, we've got to remember that people don't operate the spaces like they used to. They used to go to community centres. They used to go to the pub. We know that's decreasing and shrinking all the time. What people do now is they stay home or they sit in their small environments on their phones. So how they communicate and absorb information is very different. So some of the stories we mightn't have given so much weight to, i.e. a look around a new pub opening, we are still the public's eyes and ears. We get to places they will never be able to get to. We'll see things they will never be able to see. And we have a huge responsibility as journalists and media outlets. So we just have to get the gauge right as to what information people need. We use the analytics and then we answer. We answer what they need. And, and I think that's, that is changing because of the trusted brand. Helen Dolby agrees. The, I think it's really important that the way that we train the journalists of the future, and many of you who are in this room, is to make you understand that actually analytics unlock a good journalist becoming really great. They don't replace the news sense and instinct for a good story, and they don't replace the importance of you know the code of conduct that we operate to and the brand values that we have. They are the most important things um, that, that, that you'll have. Um, but analytics help you to bring that to the biggest possible audience. Megan Lucero again. One thing I sort of learned at the shooting place I've worked at is that, you know, papers in their physical form were a curation, right? You picked that up because you trusted that, that source to curate the news that day for you. And as we were just saying that, you know, the internet has been incredible for opportunity, but it sort of flatlined the way that publishing worked, whereas anyone could technically publish, anyone could technically bring you information, whereas before, paper was your gatekeeper to that. But actually, what all that it has done is sort of, we have a bigger breadth of that. But now more than ever, actually, you do want a trusted source that will curate. People are completely overwhelmed. You flip through your Facebook, you flip through your Twitter, you're all over, there is so much information, I think, actually, that news organizations are going to stand above that. If, if they can hold the integrity that they, that they should, you know, and don't, quote, don't, as you're saying, don't take the bait, or the kind of clickbait route or whatever, really hold your ground on it and listen both to the analytics and to the kind of nuisance. Because the thing about, I mean, I, worked, I work in data, that's my, that is my whole world. The thing is, data only really shows you the sort of digital imprint that something it has, but it does not necessarily bring the insight that it can be. So what we learned one time was, you know, you were finding, oh, they're only clicking on these stories, but when we took like a user group and actually sat down, people actually really loved reading headlines, like just because they didn't click on it. They really actually valued having headlines of certain things. They felt informed by it, but the things that they maybe clicked on were completely different about what they, what they wanted to choose to spend those, those next three minutes that they had before their train came. But actually they valued getting newsletters that had headlines in, or they valued being able to skim through your site or whatever it was, or flip, just as you would flip through the paper physically. You might not read every single thing, but you valued getting access to that information. So just because people click on cat videos doesn't mean we should completely serve cat videos all day long. And I think that's a really important thing to think about data. Data can, you get to glean insight from it and it really can only bring certain elements. And obviously that's what you're saying, the human bit of it is as well. For me as a data journalist, you know, we do a ton of work on that. And just the moment that it sort of spits out whatever the top city for crime rates or whatever it is, that's the beginning of your journalism. That gives you the lead to then you have to go find out why. 
like journalism is not what it is why and you, and that's the thing that we really need local newsrooms to do and local reporters to do and people who live in those spaces to go find out why is that happening and go talk and bring the human element people right now are really really overwhelmed or finding especially in kind of data journalism space I work in they get really overwhelmed with these giant numbers what does that even what does that what does three billion mean to your life what does that actually mean to your life how does that affect my hospital how does it affect my town and that's so important I think now more than ever, I really do believe that local news spaces are going to have, will be able to, if they can, stand above the crowd of noise and actually be trusted sources on that. In its effort to address the so-called democratic deficit, the BBC has launched local news partnerships, which include the creation of 150 local democracy reporters. These will be paid for by the BBC, but employed in the newsrooms of local newspapers, hyperlocals and other regional news outlets around the country. We Skyped Matthew Barraclough, the BBC's Head of Local News Partnerships, to ask him how he thinks the initiative will work in practice. It's the, it's the part of the partnerships that's costing the most. It's 150 journalists across the UK. In, in simple terms, we pay, they provide, we all use. It's an agency, it's a virtual agency because the stuff that the reporters write is not designed directly for an audience, but it will go through somebody's hands before it hits their audience. So in a BBC uh, context, we'll look at it, if we like it, one of our people will upload it digitally or maybe turn it into radio. I'm, I'm kind of really excited about this because when we trialled it in the Northeast for three weeks and in East Midlands, some of the stories that came out were just stories that we wouldn't normally get. And I think they're going to be the stories that will aggregate international stories. I'll give you an example. Gateshead Council um, heard a report about a loophole in the way taxi driving is licensed. I won't go into the full details, but it's a kind of, it made you sit up and think, really, is that true? And actually, Gateshead Council were discussing it, but it wasn't a Gateshead story. The loophole is a, a loophole in national law. I think our ability to look into an enormous pot of stories that are in the public interest and be able to find national stories is, is incredibly exciting. And at a time when we know that things like child sex exploitation can happen on a massive scale without people waking up until it's very late in the day, when tower blocks can go up uh, in, in flame and people say, well, what, you know, how is it that people didn't know about this? I think there's a real imperative for us to get back into council chambers wherever we can to actually hear what those elected representatives say and to hold them to account. Even if you're commercial, so you are, say, Trinity Mirror, you're like the Cron, you're a commercial news provider. Even if you're uncommercial, if you are a small hyperlocal provider and you just managed to cover your costs, it doesn't matter. We have the ability to work together for the common good. And the, the LDRS is all about that. It's about public service journalism. It's not just about the BBC. It's about asking other people who are out there now to undertake a public service journalism mission on behalf of the British people. Does he think the local news partnerships are a short-term sticking plaster or a sustainable long-term solution to the democratic deficit? I don't think it's a sticking plaster um, in the sense that we're committing to fund this across the charter. So that's quite... I mean, who else could make that commitment apart from the BBC? And to say that we're going to put 150 reporters across the UK for 10 years, I think is a very meaningful commitment. 
it's not going to change the fundamental economics of local news at all. And it's not designed to do that because it's, it's not the BBC's business to do a market intervention like that. Um, we're not regulators and uh, we, you know, we've got to be very careful about how we do spend money in this space. Do I think it will go on like this forever? Well, the proof will be in the pudding. If the stories that come back are useful, that they have journalistic impact, that we can demonstrate they have a benign effect on democracy, if we look for other indications that it's having an effect, if ordinary citizens find out more about how their local lives are being governed, then I think we could easily say it's long term. But everything's subject to public value analysis and the BBC is only funded in chunks. So all we can say at this point is we're very committed to doing it for this charter period. Beyond that, I couldn't say, but I would be hopeful as somebody who's been involved with this from its very inception that it does continue because I think that where we can find uh, spaces to work with partners in this area, we should, we should try and keep on doing it. Because collaboration, what, whatever happens, however people are going to make money and survive in the 21st century providing news, I'm absolutely sure that working together with other news providers is going to be part of the mix. So what does he see are the challenges and opportunities for collaboration at a local level? I think we've always got to realise that we have much more in common than we have that makes us different. It's so easy when you're a journalist to say, well, I'm not a TV journalist or I'm a public service journalist, I'm not a radio journalist. In the Venn diagram, you're looking for the differences and you see those people as your editorial competitors. But if you think about the rest of the world and about mass providers of content, such as social media or Google, actually the journalistic values of fairness and accuracy, um, of having expertise, of having a mission to cut through the waffle and get to the truth, we've all got that. And in the local sphere, we're nearly all um, very motivated to serve a particular part of the country. There's a community that means something to us. So inside the BBC and outside the BBC, actually, we, we have that. That is our shared DNA, and that is phenomenally important. The challenge we've got to get over is the mistrust of each other's working practices or simply years of ingrained competitive behaviour that makes us kind of almost want to not only beat people to the story, but also sort of like, you know, them off the face of the earth. The fact is that inside the BBC, we believe in a plural media. We want there to be lots of choice. We don't want ever to be the last person standing in a news market because that looks terrible and it is a failure of democracy. So I think um, the more I've worked with people who are in newspapers or online, publishing, the more we've developed trust. Trust is about understanding somebody else's point of view. The more we work with newspapers, we, the more we get pressures that they're under, we understand the kind of challenges that they face that we're totally insulated from. So the big hurdle is trust. So are our panellists convinced that the local news democracy reporter scheme will succeed? Gavin Foster. We, we were involved in the pilot. We were part of the pilot for the, for the whole national scheme. And we had a reporter case for four weeks who uh, they identified South Shields as an area that had a democratic deficit. And the reporter was able, just like Andrew's been, um, been talking about, 
what we have to admit is that where we had a huge amount of resource back in the day, we simply haven't got the resource we had. And so what we've had to do is prioritise in newsrooms. Each and every day we have to prioritise on delivery. And because of that, you can't get into the small committee meetings like we used to. You can't do the digging you used to. You can't spend a huge amount of time on one particular issue because you've got another eight or nine stories to do that day and video and so on that you've got to deliver. Um, so what the Democracy Report was able to do was to tap into some of those smaller community meetings, some of your police forums even that he was able to go along to that used to be our bread and butter and not just delivering stories on local politics but they were able to pick up things in those meetings for instance he picked up um, a story from a, a local beat bobby about a cannabis fine which turned out to be huge in south shields the police just hadn't put that information out i don't know why it was a would have been a great celebration for them but it, it led to a little bit of information that turned into a great local news story um, and from that, obviously, we're now looking at rolling this scheme out. We have, as an organisation, applied for some of those um, democratic reporters, um, and we wait to see how that's going to work. Obviously, we should get some decisions very soon. Um, but any kind of assistance in being able to get back to that space, which we have to admit and hold our hands up, we haven't been able to get into simply because of resource, it's um, got to be welcome. Helen Dolby agrees. I think it can only make us better um, in terms of the coverage that we uh, that we provide. But I also think that away from this particular project, there are there are bits of collaboration that happen that we could build on. So an example from a couple of years ago, we worked with the City Council when the Rugby World Cup was here, just on having a steering group around coverage of that. And it wasn't just about coverage of it, it was of course about the event organisation itself. But actually one of the things that came out of that was a closed Facebook group that, that my live blog team and the council were kind of collaborating directly on wasn't open to the public but what it was was it enabled us to get messages to the public quickly to the biggest audience as fast as possible practical messages important messages key things that the council wanted to get out about the rugby world cup it worked brilliantly um, and actually that's something that we should do much more of with a lot with a lot of you know things that happen in the city a lot of events that's a really good way uh, of two big organizations to just directly get things to the right people as fast as possible so i think there's lots of scope for collaboration definitely megan lucero says the internet has also changed what journalists have to report on and how we should be training them you know we have technology increasing at a rate that humans cannot kind of compute to and i think not as in a way of scary sort of you know hiring kind of worry but i think when it comes to things like the, the amount of information that the police the data amount the police alone publish you know we need we also need to scale up our reporters and we need to think for the think about the future of how how do we actually dig into all that because behind every behind all of that are, are huge huge amounts of stories so being able to get to the bottom of, of like I said, Lords of Lords of Crime reports or whatever it is, I think will allow us. If we use new t newer technology, we need to be able to use that as well. It'll help you get to that story quicker and dig deeper um, in a way we can't. I just don't think we can keep existing in the world as traditional journalists when the world around us is sort of changing in the way that produces and 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 analyzes because every other company is doing it, every other organization is, is doing. It. I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily the, gov the government are a bit behind on that as well, but. Um, unfortunately, some of the best minds of, of our time right now are going into tech companies, not going into government or into journalism. Um, and we, I think we really need to harness that. I mean, that's why I, I, I partner a lot of our journalists with programmers or with academics or whatever that is, because it kind of can help you get 
that quick knowledge space or that quick kind of coding to sort of we've got this huge file of all the police reports, you know, there's no way a human could do that that quickly and hit a deadline. So how can we sort of build that into the practice? I think that's another big part of it. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University and BBC North East and Cumbria. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening.